the town's old theater, and the wild mountain views of the sea, the museum is worth stopping by as a reminder of where this place came from. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. And with me in the studio, I have Tom Chen, who is an independent filmmaker. Well, let's meet Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi, Shirley. I'm Tom Chen. Yes. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Okay, you're from Taiwan. Yes. You were born here. Yes. Except that uh, at the age of 14, you moved to the States. Yes. I went yeah. to California for, uh, for junior high school. Mm. Just you alone or with your family? Uh, just me alone. Oh, so your parents knew all along that they were going to send you abroad to study. Well, actually, I requested it. I, I feel like I wasn't doing so well in the Taiwanese schooling system, so I decided that maybe I should go try it out in the States. Just like that? Yeah. Do you have any siblings? No, I'm the only child. Oh, okay. Yeah, so can I say that your parents would give in to whatever your request or that you want to do, right? Pretty, pretty much, much. Pretty much. <laughs> and you knew you wanted to go to California, of all places. Well, because or, I had relatives there, and um, it was it was a easier step for me, I guess, to, mm -hmm. to just go to California and, you know, hang out with my siblings there. Right. Other relatives, my yeah. cousins and stuff. Was that a, a right decision for you, you think? Uh, I think it was a pretty right decision for me. Like, before, before I went to Cali, I couldn't study. Like, studying was not my thing at all. I was dropping out of school. I was, you know, having low grades and all. And after I went to Cali, it kind of just got it. Yeah, I think it's, you know, sometimes it's the environment that kind of makes a difference. I know yeah. one of my cousins, I mean, he was doing so bad in school here that his parents decided to send him to the States. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he was doing a little better, except um, he asked for a truck later. And then <laughs> anyway, yeah, we all know <laughs> he that. did all right. He did all right. Not like great, great, you know. But I heard that you got kicked out of the States. Oh, oh yeah. Or was that later or, or uh, that was the time? That was the time when I went to California. At the beginning of the junior year in high school, I got kicked out of the public school in the States because I had a pocket knife with me. Oh, it wasn't because your grades were bad. No, no, no. <laughs> it was just because of a small pocket knife on my keychain. And I think it was also the year the Virginia Tech shooting happened. So every school got really strict I uh, on that see policy. That. Yeah. Okay. Well you, well, you got kicked out of the school, not out of the States. Well, actually, it happened together. Yeah. Why? Uh, I was charged with felony for having weapon on campus. They did not specify for knife. They just said weapon. So in order for me to clean my record and be able to go back to the States again, I had to do a year of overseas probation and community service. 
in Taiwan. Oh, so that's what happened. Oh, yep. I didn't know that you can make up for it by doing that. Well, because I had good grades. That's partially the reason why I couldn't make it up to it. Good thing you had good grades. Yeah, I came back and I was stuck in a vocational high school in Taiwan because one of the rulings of the judges is that I cannot be outside of school. I have to stay in school. Yeah. And at the time when I came back, there was no school that's willing to take me in because it was in the middle of the school year. Also because I didn't have uh, the schooling scores for yeah. for going into high school in Taiwan, so I have to stay there. And then after that, uh, I went to an international school in Taichung. Oh wait, wait, wait! Did you spend some time in vocational school then? Yes. Yeah. Oh, you about, did about half a semester. Like two months. Pretty much. Okay. Why didn't they keep you there? Why couldn't they keep you there? Uh, in the vocational school. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to stay. Because I knew that was not what I wanted to do, so I had to go through entire Taiwan to find an international school that's willing to take me in. And that was in Taizong. Yeah. While your parents were in Taipei. Yes. Because this is quite some story. Yeah. <laughs>、uh, did did the media got in on that story at all? No, I don't think so. <laughs> not at all. Did you like the international school? It was. It was pretty great actually, because it was a small school in Taichung, and they take students that doesn't have you know other countries' nationalities. They take actually local Taiwanese students. Oh, okay. Because most of the international school in Taiwan only accept people that are not from Taiwan. And during all this time, you've kept up your Chinese, like the reading, writing, and. Speaking and all that. Yes, I also speak Taiwanese as well. So you didn't have any problem coming back, adjusting to the school here. Not I mean,、really. basically. So then, after international school, you graduated. Yes, I graduated finally, and with I, honors. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Really. And then I went into the army <laughs> right yeah, away. Right away, because for the U.S. college to defer you for a year, the dates are very exact. Mm-hmm. So I have to finish the military like right away within a year. Wow! All that happened within a year and a half, right? That packed a lot of stuff within that short period of time. You got a lot accomplished. Yeah. After you completed the military, you couldn't wait to go back to the states. Yes, I, I applied for、uh, New York University and I got accepted. That was the only university you applied. That was the only university on the East Coast that I applied to. I, I didn't know whether or not I wanted to go back to Cali or go to New York. Great, that's a good school. That that's a pretty、um, good school. Yeah. Yeah, and you were studying psychology. Yes, I majored in psychology and I minored in film. Okay, so they're both your interests. Yes. Why psychology? I like to understand how people think. I think that's one of the thing I have issues with growing up because I keep moving to places. I meet new people and then I lost touch with older friends. And of all the people that I met, I've always curious how different people think, why they think that way,、mm-hmm. and why they behave that way. So in college, I decided to do psychology. Did you get to know your parents better after、uh, majoring in psychology? <laughs> well, actually, yes. And also, I also inspired my mom to study psychology. She's doing、no、grad school.、Kidding. Yeah, she's doing grad school right now. Oh wow, this is an amazing story. It's pretty.、Fun. Yeah, I think you should write a book. You know, <laughs> you've gone through a lot, I and mean, this is really quite something. Okay, so how many more years to go before your mom graduates? Oh,、uh, I think a year and a half. Wow, and she's like, how old is she now? Oh,、uh, she's fifty-six. Okay, that's my age. Yes.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> What about your dad in the meantime? Oh well, actually, my parents got divorced when I was really young. It's mostly just my mom. Oh, I see.、You're, yeah. So you're with your mom. I get it. Yeah, my get dad it. is a musician in China. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, he plays the violin and ended up doing, you know, trading of violins and making them. Does he make them himself too? Yes. 
Oh. Yeah, he has his own factory in China right now. Very interesting. Are you still in touch with him? Uh, yes. He knows, like you know, what you're doing and what、uh, you're up to, and well, we got in touch like once a year. He has a new family.、So. Oh, I get it.、Yeah. I get it. Now I know why you were interested in psychology. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. The film part. The film part actually came、uh, during high school. I had a really, really great teacher back in high school. He taught a class called Literature and Film, and that is actually when I realized how much more there is to film. Because、mm. before then, I just thought filming is just, you know, it's movies. You watch them, and then you get a laugh or whatever, and that's it. But then after I took his class, and he inspired me into going into film. That sounds so much like my son. He's always loved movies ever since he was small. Watching movies. Yeah, that me、is. too. Yes, and then、um, I believe、uh, it was like in junior high when I asked him. I said, "Well, you know, you like movies so much. Why would you study film?" And he says, "No, I just like watching movies." <laughs> But then three years later, he started thinking, and、um, and then we sent him to summer school over at Beida,、um, mm-hmm. the,、um, the the National Taipei University of the Arts, and、um, for summer school for like a twelve day thing, and you know, stayed on campus. After that, he loved it, and he knew he wanted to go and, and study film. Yeah, I yeah. think for film, you have to have someone inspire you into doing it. Oh, did I do that? <laughs> I think、son? you did.、Okay. Yeah. But anyway, wow, that's really interesting. I, I really want to know what the teacher actually said. Can you remember some of the things that was it he or she? He. He,、oh, he. said that really got you thinking. Oh,、uh, this is one thing he said that was really interesting. He told me that whatever you do when you procrastinate, that's your actual passion at. And he would know because I would always procrastinate from doing homework by watching movies. After that, I didn't think much at the time. But then when I got to college, I actually realized what he meant back then. Very interesting. I'm gonna ponder on that. Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy what you studied in film at NYU? Oh、uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. It was a it was a great school for filming actually. Oh, I'm They sure. They offer a、I、variety、know. of classes. So, would you recommend to my son? <laughs> I I would actually. The filming at NYU is actually pretty great. Yeah, I know. Yeah. After graduating from NYU, did you stay there for some? I don't know. Some opportunities, well, you know, actually, work opportunities, or I what? Couldn't get a working visa、oh. because I was not a citizen. So I moved back to Taiwan. Well, actually, I went to China first. I taught TOEFL in Shanghai for about a year. After graduating, you can't apply for work permit. I mean, I've been in that situation before. Yeah, but I didn't want to because it wasn't enough time for me to actually get enough of、um, projects to to be able to apply for artist visa. Right. You were explaining to me earlier that the U.S. would have allowed you a work permit if you were to get a job in psychology. Yes. In the psychology field, but you wanted a job in the minor, the the, the filming, filming industry, part. Yes. And so. You would have to apply for artist visa, but then there wasn't enough time for you to do that. Well,、yep. why won't you just land on a psychology job and then wait until you get your artist visa and then? Because、well, I, I think U.S. is a great place for it, it developing is, but, film.、Uh, the thing with that is, I, I when I graduated from college, I was already three years behind. Oh, from most people, yeah. When I went to Cali, I got withheld back a year. Right. And when I got kicked out, there was another year wasted. And I went to the military. That's another year. So when I graduated college, I'm actually three years older than most of my peers. Oh, I see. 
Yeah, so I、uh, did not want to wait. Yeah,、okay. I want to get right into what I wanted to do. So you went from there to Shanghai. Yeah. How did that come about? I needed a job to save up money、mm-hmm. real fast. Yeah. So I decided to teach English. Oh, okay. So you kind of like Googled and then found this opportunity or something. Uh, actually, a friend referred me to one of、uh, her friend's company in in Shanghai. So you went straight to Shanghai. Yep. And you said you were teaching. Uh, TOEFL. Yes. Did you like that teaching? No, not at all. But for the for the sake of money. Yes, for the sake of money, I did for about a year. Wow, you hung up for a year. That's, yeah.、Uh, that the、uh, pay was really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to say the pay was really good, and I I guess I couldn't stand it is because of the hours.、Oh. I'm more of a free spirit person. I can't really stick to a regular schedule every day. That kind of got me down. Like at the end of that, I just couldn't go to work. Like I couldn't do anything else but go to work, you know, and that really upset me. I mean, what times were you teaching during the day or evenings? Uh, I taught pretty much all day. All, all day. Yeah,、oh, from sometimes, especially during summer, it was from nine to nine. To adults or children? Uh, high schoolers. High schoolers. Yeah, and also I did listening and speaking, so I have to talk and talk and talk for like twelve hours a day. I just. Oh, I know how that feels. Yeah, yeah. I was really tiring. But you hung on for a year. That's not easy for someone like you. Yeah, true. So what happened after that?、Uh, I met with a director in Beijing. She's actually a small... through connections. Uh, yes, through through connection through my mom's friend actually. So I met with her and I decided to. I I thought I had enough money saved,、mm-hmm. so I decided to move to Beijing and start doing film. How was that? It was okay, you know. I met with her. She she's a great person, and but through her, I met someone else that scanned me. I did a job for about two months,、yeah. and I did not get paid a single dime afterwards. Oh my goodness! Sadly, things like that happens in China. Yeah, quite often actually. <sighs> well, what can you say? So that must have disappointed you. Now you have a bad impression of Beijing, but it's mostly for the place, not because of the fact that you got scammed. Well, or both. Both actually, right, yeah. Both. But so, what did you do? <laughs> I I came back to Taiwan. You came back to Taiwan. Yes. Couldn't you have stayed there? Well, I I didn't want to also because、uh, at the time my mom had some issues. Yeah,、okay. one of her accountants ran away. What? Yeah, she also got scammed. Oh no. Yeah. That must have been a bad year for the family. Yeah, it was pretty bad for for the both of us. Yeah. So you came back. I mean, you start looking for like filming job. Opportunities, right? Well, I suppose at, at the same time, also I had a group of friends I met in New York, and、yeah. we started up our own kitchen in Taipei.、Just、well, it started just... when I was in Shanghai. They started it first. I、okay. invested it. Wow, you had enough money to invest in it. Yes, you're the big boss. Well, not really. We're, we're I think we're partners. All, yeah, partners. We're、okay. all equal there. How, how many of you? Uh, we have right now. We have about the main people are like four. There's the four main guys that、uh, you know runs everything, and then now it grew into about ten-ish people. Wow! Now these ten people are here in Taiwan with you right now, or yeah, we're all in Taipei. We have a small kitchen in Taipei. You're all from Taiwan. Yes. And you first met them in Shanghai. No, I met them in New York. <laughs> okay, you met them in New yeah, York. Yeah, very messy, you know, <laughs> life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is really is one exciting life. So, what's with the ten friends, and the private kitchen, and where's all the film part now? So, tune in next week to hear more from Tom Chen. For in the spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin.
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. In the heart of December, we look to one of the most widely read poets of the Tang Dynasty, Bai Juyi. He wrote about winter and many other topics. And he also wrote about the famous love story between the Tang Emperor Xuanzong and his favorite concubine Yang Guifei, a love affair that was later said to have caused the fall of his rule. Many have called this poem the Song of Everlasting Sorrow, a literary masterpiece. Today we read the emperor's sentiments after he was forced to have her killed. Viewing the moon in the temporary palace escalated sadness. Hearing wind charms and rainy nights deepened brokenheartedness. Finally, the rebellion was suppressed and the monarchy reinstated. As they returned to the very spot, the emperor hesitated. Under the Maui slope, he searched in the mud, but failed to find any trace where she shed her blood. The emperor and his ministers all wept in a gloomy state. Their horses took them eastwards back to the capital gate. Upon return, the ponds and gardens seemed like old days. Hibiscus by Lake Taya and willows by Weiyang Palace. Her face resembled a hibiscus. Her eyebrows willow leaves. Viewing these, how could he stop the tears down his face? When vernal breeze blew, peach trees blossomed all around. When autumn rain came, plain tree leaves fell on the ground. Autumn weeds grew tall in the west and south palaces. No one swept those stairs covered by the red leaves. The hairs of the royal opera players looked whiter. The pretty maids of the emperor's palace grew older. Fireflies flew over the hall as he meditated in twilight. The lamp wick burned out as he stayed awake all night. The hourly bell and drum always seemed late in the long night. The Milky Way projected its gloom to bring out the twilight. Heavy frost made the cold ceramic tiles on the roof seem bright. Under the cold green comfort, with whom could he spend the night? Many years had gone by since the life and death separation, yet not even in his dream did he meet her incarnation. A Taoist from Lingchong was in the capital for a visitation. Capable of summoning spirits with his eldritch concentration, the Taoist was deeply moved by Emperor's constant yearning. To find her incarnation, he engaged an exhaustive searching. He moved through ether, traveled as fast as lightning. No one in the air or on the earth was he not seeking. Up in heaven and down to hell he went. Both places were hazy, failing his intent. Then he heard an enchanted mountain at sea, floating in the midst that no one could see. Adorned towers rose above five colored clouds, where many beautiful fairies gathered in crowds. Among them was an one named Taizen. Same flowery face and silken skin were reborn again. Under the golden gate of West Hall, he knocked on the jade door. From Xiaoyu to Suangcheng, the call was sent to her floor. A messenger from the emperor waiting was Taizen told, as she was wakened in the flowery canopy, quite startled. 
She put on her gown, pushed away the pillow, and wandered around. Then through the pearl shade and silver screen she came down. As she just woke up, her cloud-like hair was still pushed aside. She entered the room with her flowery crown, hanging awry. With sleeves waving in the wind, she was like a goddess at a glance, as if she were in the rainbow dress and feather gown dance. Loneliness appeared on her pretty face with tears stained, like a blossom on a pure tree after a spring rain. With affection in her eyes, she thanked for Emperor's indulgence. Ever since they had parted, she missed his voice and appearance. Their passion in Zaoyang Palace was long ended. Her solitary life in Ponglai Temple had just started. She turned and looked down toward the mortal world. Not a glimpse of the capital, just dust and cloud. She took out some old gifts, showing her nostalgic feeling, a gold hairpin, and an inlaid case to renew the pledging. She kept one branch of the hairpin and one side of the box. As she split the hairpin and broke in half the box, let our pledge be as strong as the inlaid and the gold. We will reunite, if not in heaven, in the mortal world. She asked the messenger to bring back a verse with a clue. There was a vow in the verse only the two of them knew. On a Valentine's Day in Longevity Hall, away from the crowd, at midnight, when no one else was around, they vowed, Let's be two birds in the sky, flying side by side. Let's be two branches on the earth, inseparably tied. The sky and the earth will not be eternal, however. Only this regret remains and lasts forever and ever. The Song of Everlasting Regret by the famous Tang Dynasty poet Bai Ju Yi. It describes one of the most famous love stories in Chinese history between the Emperor Xuanzong of the Tang Dynasty and his favorite concubine. Yang Guifei. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is. John Van Trieste and the destination Wu Feng. For generations, the Lin family of Wu Feng was one of Taiwan's most influential. Its members commanded armies, controlled vital resources, and later led a push for public education and culture in Taiwan. The family's home base. A complex of lavish structures in the Wufeng area of central Taiwan may be the most beautiful and valuable collection of historic Taiwanese buildings. In this two-part series, we've joined up with Mr. Lin, a member of the family's ninth generation in Taiwan. With him as our guide, we've looked at the family's rise to the top of Taiwanese society and met the family's most illustrious members. Today, Mr. Lin is back for a look at the buildings that filled the compound, and for a look at the family garden, also ranked among Taiwan's most famous. 
The family compound consists of nine buildings. These are split between two neighboring sections because over time the family got quite large. The original building at the core of it all is an 1837 homestead that we briefly met last week. This is a Sanhe Yuan, or a traditional house built with three wings. Two other buildings were added nearby when fifth-generation son Lin Wencha rose to Imperial China's highest military rank. Lin Wencha had barracks built for his men. He also built a grand official residence, which future generations kept expanding. By the end of the 19th century, it was a bit of a labyrinth, punctuated by four courtyards. Even more buildings grew up in the late 19th century when the family took hold of the lucrative monopoly on camphor. Camphor was made from trees found abundantly in Taiwan, and at the time, it was a vital strategic resource used by the world's militaries for making smokeless gunpowder. Mr. Lin calls this collection of buildings an encyclopedia of the Chinese-style architecture of the period. He asserts that on either side of the Taiwan Strait, you won't find a cluster of buildings that served so many different roles. There were, of course, fabulous dwellings built to house family members in style. Though there is some variation, because at the time your official rank determined just how lavishly you were allowed to build. There's also a private family school for the study of Confucian classics, an essential field for would-be civil officials to master. As we've already said, there was a barracks for soldiers, and there was even a stage for Chinese opera set up amid a building that could also host banquets. The newest building in this complex dates from 1906. It was built after Japan took control of Taiwan, a break in Taiwan's history, and so this building's a bit of an outlier, showing Western and Japanese influences. The rest of the buildings, though, are firmly rooted in the old Imperial Chinese order. Specifically, Mr. Lin says, the buildings are built in the style of Southern Fujian Province. It's a style many old buildings in Taiwan share, since Southern Fujian Province was the place where most ethnic Chinese migrants to Taiwan came from. I ask Mr. Lin to explain what it is that sets this style apart. He says distinguishing features include the use of red bricks and slanted tiled roofs. Then there are rich decorations, lots of lucky symbols that express wishes for long life and prosperity. One example in the Lin family compound can be found in the protective gods that are painted on some of the doors. Normally, these so-called door gods are only found in temples, but since the Wufeng Lins became high officials, their buildings got to have them too. On one pair of doors, the god of the left door holds an official cap, while the god to the right holds a miniature deer. This is a visual pun, using a word that sounded like the animal deer to conjure up the phrase "May you rise to high rank." Another pair of doors expressed a similar wish for wealth and rank, with one god holding a peony flower and an ancient kind of drinking vessel. Again, this is a pun based on words that sound alike. It wasn't all just puns, though. 
Some symbols were metaphors, like pomegranates, whose seeds represented having many descendants. Mr. Lin says it's difficult for those who can't read this symbolic language to really appreciate what all these richly decorated buildings are trying to say to us. He says that's why you need to take a guided tour of the compound, something offered in several languages. The family's garden, meanwhile, is regarded as one of Taiwan's four great gardens. This is separate from the compound, sitting today on a school campus, but still maintained as it was. The family garden was completed in the 1890s, after its founder, Lin Wenqing, passed an exam to become an official. The purpose of the garden was to entertain his parents. Since it was first landscaped, this garden has become known for 10 especially poetic views. For instance, there's a stretch of water called Washerwoman Stream and a bridge that crosses over it. There's a raised spot called Moon Viewing Peak, a quiet pavilion, a pond, and also Lychee Island, which is a terrace with another pavilion on top of it. The garden is a deeply soothing place to walk around, and Mr. Lin laughs as he tells me that there are far more than 10 sites worth seeing there. At first, the garden may have been built to entertain Lin Wenqing's elderly parents, but in the end, it became much more. In the early 20th century, after Taiwan came under Japanese rule, this garden became a place of cultural resistance. It was a place where, despite colonial attempts to uproot local culture, classic Chinese poetry could continue to flourish. The Wu Fenglin family itself produced three notable poets who, during this period, founded a Chinese poetic society called the Li She. This was an invitation-only association. The garden was an inspiring place where society members would often meet and compose literature. Today, in addition to its famed ten sites, the garden is also a place filled with information about these poets and their work. Taiwan is no stranger to natural disasters, but the earthquake of September 21, 1999, was enormous. It measured above 7 on the Richter scale, and it shattered central Taiwan. Parts of the Wufenglin compound collapsed entirely. Other buildings were barely recognizable. You may recall that one of the oldest buildings was an official residence that slowly got expanded. By the time the shaking subsided, 85% of that building was just rubble. Even many buildings that survived suffered heavy damage or at least tilting. It was a catastrophe, and that's the word Mr. Lin uses to describe it. But he also manages to find a bright side to the awful destruction. This was a chance to rebuild, and as work went on, a chance to rediscover forgotten period building techniques. Over more than 10 painful years of rebuilding, research into historical records, building techniques, and carvings advanced. Today, the old buildings are back in good shape, but not all of them are open to the public. 
there's office space for the management team, and some buildings are still used by family descendants. But public or not, the upkeep and preservation of the whole compound is something the family takes seriously. Mr. Lin himself spent several decades abroad living in Thailand, but around eight years ago, he made the journey home to help handle the property. As he was preparing to make the move back, his father told him something. This Wufeng Lin mansion no longer belongs to us Lins. It belongs to all Taiwan's people. He says the hope in opening up parts of the compound is that future generations will get to see this cultural heritage and understand it. I am John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. of too many fake news is to compromise the whole image and reputation of journalism. It's very important that uh, the world would find ways to fight against fake news. But I insist that it is not simple and fake news cannot be blocked using censorship. Hello and welcome to this week's online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. East Asia and Taipei Bureau Director Cedric Alviani of RSF or Reporters Song Frontier or Reporters Without Borders said this information has caused a great impact on journalism. When the public receives too much information, they tend to believe what they are told. Every government should fight against fake news, but he does not agree using censorship to deter fake news. He added that the government of Taiwan is considering revising the law to stop fake news and he calls upon the government to engage in positive measures to fight against fake news. And our guest today is Mr. Cedric Alviani, the East Asia and Taipei Bureau Director of RSF or Reporters Without Borders. Now, Mr. Cedric Alviani, we know that uh, recently disinformation or fake news uh, has been growing. Um, I think it has become a concern for many people, even for the governments of many countries, including the government of Taiwan. How does disinformation or fake news cause an impact on journalism, according to your opinion? Yeah, of course, fake news is causing a big impact on journalism. Because in the mind of the public, they uh, might tend not to be very clear on what is real and uh, what is not real. Uh, and what is usually being noticed is that when when people receive too many fake information, they tend not to believe in anything anymore. They tend sometimes just to believe what they are told, or they tend just not to listen to anything, including what. Uh, the journalists have to say. So I would say the risk of too many fake news is to compromise the whole image and reputation of journalism. So it's very important that uh, we find a struggle, we find a way. It's very important that uh, the world would find ways to fight against fake news. But I insist that it is not simple and fake news cannot be blocked using censorship. I'm going to take the example of Taiwan because I heard it has been a, uh, 
it it, it, ha, it has been discussed uh, recently. Du- yeah, recently during the time of the elections, if the Taiwanese authorities find a way to censor what they consider as fake news, no matter they are right or wrong, they are doing exactly the thing that China is doing, mm-hmm. censoring. So it's extremely important to keep in mind that fake news, of course, might create some chaos, but it is not proven how much chaos it actually proves or has proved in the past in Taiwan. But what is sure is that it is extremely dangerous to use the same weapons as your opponent. So I would recommend uh, the Taiwanese authorities to try and engage in some positive measures to fight against fake news, which could be, for example, to uh, encourage a better quality uh, journalism in Taiwan, which wouldn't be hard to do because uh, it, it would request, of course, some serious investment in the public media. When I say serious investment, I do not mean add a little bit of money. I mean change the scale of the budget given to the public media so that they really would have the power to, um, to, to be an alternative to the commercial media. Secondly, find ways to encourage the commercial media to provide better quality coverage and not to run only for the audience, not to run only for the advertisers, because this is not a way to to do the best possible journalism. Uh, We would also encourage the Taiwanese authorities to create an economic environment that is allowing the birth and the growth of new online investigation media. So far, Taiwan is the place uh, that is famous for its free enterprise and its number of SMEs, but I do not see these SMEs in the domain of media. This is probably uh, somewhere where the Taiwanese authorities could be more active. All these can be positive measures. You can use fiscal incentive. You can use... There's a lot of ways to to support new ideas uh, without censoring. Indeed. I think the government should not take such a radical action, for example, like censorship in the disinformation or fake news? Yeah, when governments decide to censor, first, it's always somehow uh, because they failed to, uh, to prevent the problem to happen. But censorship does not fix the problem. And even worse, censorship puts you on the wrong side. Imagine if It is true that China is uh, sending a lot of fake news to try and destabilize Taiwan. By censoring these fake news, the Taiwanese authorities are doing exactly what China wants to do, meaning they are doing the same and they are reducing the the difference. They are reducing the space uh, between the democracy, which Taiwan is, and between the dictatorship, which China is. Mm-hmm, because Taiwan was ranked the top Asian country in the 2018 World Press Freedom Index, and it's been the sixth executive year. So we think that Taiwan should not have censorship in any form. The problem is that Taiwan has been rated pretty high in the World Press Freedom made by RSF. The reason is mostly because all other countries are having increasingly big problems. It is not because Taiwan has a perfect situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sad to say that in the past years, I have not seen any uh, significant improvement in the Taiwanese uh, media environment. So for sure, so far, Taiwan is still 
uh, number one in Asia for the freedom of the press, but would not consider that this is a badge of honor. Taiwan could do much better than that. When you consider the level of sophistication of the Taiwanese democracy, the level of quality of the Taiwanese rule of law, when you consider how Taiwan respects the human rights, then you have to admit that the freedom of the press in Taiwan could be much higher. And it wouldn't be so difficult, but so far there has not been any significant um, will from the authorities to engage so. And I'm talking not only uh, the current ruling party, but I would say in the past 10 years we have not seen any evolution. You're listening to Online, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong, and today I'm speaking with Mr. Cedric Alviani, East Asia and Taipei Bureau Director of RSF or Reporters Without Borders. So there should be more evolution in the area of the freedom of the press, even though Taiwan ranks the top Asian country in the World Press Freedom Index released by RSF. Absolutely. And we are going to engage. RSF is going to engage to make sure that the freedom of the press is one central topic in the coming presidential elections, because this is not something that should be put aside. This is not a small topic, and this is not because Taiwan has a good ranking in the region that there are not possible improvements. How do you see the press freedom in Asia in general, Mr. Cedric Evoliani? It's extremely bad in general. Uh, Asia uh, nowadays is mostly composed of uh, authoritarian regimes that do not respect the freedom of the press at all. In the East Asia, we are lucky that we still have a few democracies. Taiwan is one, Japan, South Korea, and Mongolia. And these are four places where there should be improvements because they somehow represent the alternative to that authoritarian model. And the higher the standards are in these places, and the better uh, they will be able to resist to the uh, model of propaganda and of social control that is being carried by China. So we encourage very much the authorities of Taiwan, of South Korea, of Japan and Mongolia to take steps and significantly improve the level of press freedom. And when I'm talking about improving the level of press freedom, this uh, is not only on the paper, because basically every country in the world has uh, freedom of the press in its constitution, even China. The problem is that how is it enforced on a daily basis? How do the politicians, how do uh, you know the, the representatives of the people react when problems occur? How do the journalists feel on the ground? Do they feel safe to cover any kind of issue? Uh, and can this issue being published? In most democracies in the world, uh, journalists are not being massively you know, intimidated, and, uh, and the media can operate more or less free from direct intervention from the political power. But there is an incredible economic pressure, and this economic pressure usually has connections with political, uh, with political power. So uh, you cannot say that um, 
Even in democracies, the media are free from any intervention. Mm-hmm. Now, looking ahead to the year 2019, how do you see the development of press freedom? Do you think that it will get tougher? Well, we are lucky in the region to have a positive example, which is South Korea. Uh, there was a dark decade in South Korea for the freedom of the press, uh, in which the two past presidents have very actively tried to suppress the journalists' freedoms. Um, they have tried to control uh, the media environment, including the public media. And there has been an incredible struggle from the South Korean journalists and the civil society. And this has led last year to the impeachment of the past president for very serious facts of corruption. Uh, and this also has led to the election of a human rights defender, a former political prisoner, uh, who has very actively engaged in trying and uh, solve the uh, problems that had occurred in the past decade. So if this can be improved in Korea, I do not see why it could not improve in other places. Every democracy has problems. Every democracy has things that could work better. It is not an excuse that most countries in the world are worse I would say democracies must become an example. They must raise the bar in terms of press freedom. So I would encourage every democracy in the region to look at the example of uh, South Korea, that hopefully there would be more similar examples in the region. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to do in 2019? I mean, RSF, uh, to pressure for more press freedom in Asia in particular? Yes, well... In 2019, to pressure for more press freedom, we absolutely have to work with the democracies, meaning first uh, be able to communicate with the public, with the citizens of these democracies in their own language. That's the reason why our bureau was created. And I'm proud to say that we are now able to engage the people in their language, in Japanese in Japan, in uh, Korean in Korea, in Chinese uh, in in Taiwan, in Mongolian in Mongolia, for example. So uh, we are going to continue this dialogue. It's also very important that we are vocal and we wish that in the future we can raise uh, public awareness campaigns that would touch the citizens more directly. It is also, of course, very important that we keep on training and pressure on China, especially in the international organizations like the UN. And it is very important that in the democracies, we can put back the discussion on the press freedom issues at the center of the political discussions. Since there is going to be um, presidential elections in Taiwan, for example, This is the right moment, and we are planning to call on every candidate in Taiwan to the presidential election to clearly state what they want to do to improve press freedom after they are elected. We hope that uh, press freedom will prevail in every country in Asia. And we've been joined on the phone today by Mr. Cedric Alviani, the director of East 
Asia Bureau and Taipei Bureau of Reporters Without Borders, or RSF. And that's it for this week's Online, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Time to goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.